This program provides education, not advice. Sponsors pay a fee for endorsements and interviews. See the truthayf.com disclosure page for details. This is where technology, innovation, and personal finance come together. This is the truth about your future with Rick Edelman. Brought to you by Global X ETFs, dedicated to providing investors with unexplored intelligent solutions, and by Invesco QQQ, a fund that allows you to access the innovators of the NASDAQ 100. Invesco.com slash QQQ. It's Friday, January 13th. Uh-oh, it's Friday, January 13th. Hey, welcome to The Truth About Your Future. I'm Rick Edelman. We've got on today's show conversation with Lex Sokolin. He's one of the top crypto experts. This is going to be a deep dive talk. You're going to love it. Also, Jean's going to be with us with her word of the week. But first, I want to talk with you about Alzheimer's. We've got some good news and some bad news on the Alzheimer's disease battle. The FDA, here's the good news, has just approved a new drug that if you have early symptoms of the disease, it can slow the cognitive decline. The drug is called Lakembi. It's made by a Japanese pharmaceutical company called Isai and the U.S. biotech company Biogen. Remember, it was Biogen that made Adelhelm. That was the Alzheimer's drug that was really controversial a couple of years ago. It got FDA approval too, but a lot of patients got brain swelling, and it also really didn't improve anybody's condition very much. And Biogen was charging $56,000 a year for it. In the end, the Veterans Administration and Medicare refused to pay for the drug, and so that drug's really on the sidelines. Virtually nobody's taking it. Now along comes Lakembi, and we've got some more controversy about this drug because it costs $26,500 a year. Now, we've got to recognize that 85% of the patients who could benefit from this drug are covered by Medicare, and Medicare says they will not pay for it. So if Medicare says no, the Medicare patients can't get the drug. Oh, yeah, sure. If you're on Medicare and Medicare won't pay, then you could pay for it. You could write the check yourself. But how many retirees in this country can afford to pay $2,200 a month for a single drug? Half the country's retirees live on Social Security. The average check is $1,800 a month. Lakembi's $2,200 a month. So as a practical matter, if Medicare says no, this drug, even though it exists, even though the FDA has approved it, even though it works, it's unavailable. Medicare says the only way they'll cover the drug is if you're enrolled in a clinical trial. Well, that's great, except that there aren't any clinical trials right now, and there are none planned. So the Alzheimer's Association has asked Medicare and Medicaid to change their policy. But that review process takes nine months. Even though the FDA has approved the drug, even though there's plenty of supply, nobody's got any access to it. And this situation, by the way, has never occurred with any other FDA-approved drug before. And it's not just this drug that Medicare is keeping away from you. A new study was just published in JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association. They're saying that PET scans can tell you if you have Alzheimer's or dementia. And knowing you've got it prompts you to go get treatment, change your lifestyle, the way you eat, stress levels, exercise, etc. In fact, two-thirds of the patients who got PET scans did change their behavior because of the test results. The problem is that PET scans 
cost almost $10,000. And so, once again, Medicare won't pay for you to get a PET scan to diagnose Alzheimer's. There are 6 million people in the United States who have Alzheimer's. That number's rising every year. There's going to be 50 million by 2040. Why the big increase? Because so many of us are living so long. The odds of getting Alzheimer's at age 60 is 1 in 10. But by the time you're 90, it's 1 in 2. With everybody living into their 90s, half of this country's elderly are going to have Alzheimer's. Imagine if Medicare and Medicaid had to pay 10 grand for every retiree to get a PET scan. It would bankrupt the system. Medicare, for example, would spend as much on Lakembi as it spends on every other drug it covers combined. This is a sad state of affairs for sure, but it's a realistic one. Money gets in the way of healthcare delivery. It's just the way it is. That's the situation we're in. So the message, what's the moral of the story? What's the financial planning conclusion for you? Don't reach retirement without lots of money. And that's why financial advisors... You need to make sure you're counseling your client on the likelihood of large amounts of money that they're going to spend on health care in retirement. All right, let me switch gears here for you, something a little more upbeat. And in fact, that may help you get the money you need in retirement. My new book, The Truth About Crypto, has just hit two more best books of the year lists this week. Crypto News just published a list of the five cryptocurrency books to read during this crypto winter. And they cited the truth about crypto. They say it has explanations easy to grasp after reading this book You'll have a greater understanding of why blockchain know-how and digital currencies are right here to remain, how they'll develop within years to return, in addition to sensible steerage on the good funding prospects obtainable in this new asset class. And also Finbold has a story they wrote, five crypto books to read if you want to understand more about the space. They said about the truth about crypto, after finishing this book, you'll have a better understanding of why blockchain technology and digital currencies are here to stay, how they will develop in the years to come, as well as practical guidance on the investment possibilities available in this new asset class. My national number one bestseller, The Truth About Crypto, available from your favorite bookseller. I'm Rick Edelman. When we come back on the program, Lex Sokolin of Consensus and Gene's Word of the Week. Stay with us. The Truth About Your Future is sponsored by Global X ETFs. Exponential technologies are transforming the world around us and creating investing opportunities along the way. Artificial intelligence, blockchain, and clean energy are among the breakthroughs shaping new possibilities for the future. But is your portfolio keeping up? Visit GlobalXETFs.com to discover how you can invest in these and other disruptive innovations. Welcome back to the program. Thanks for hanging around on the Truth About Your Future podcast. I'm really excited to be bringing back onto the program my really good friend, Lex Sucklin. Lex has been in the crypto space a really long time. He's a chief crypto economist and the global fintech co-head at Consensus. Everybody in the world of crypto knows Lex. If you're not in the world of crypto, you might not. But Lex is a futurist. He's an entrepreneur, works with the next generation of financial services. 
and he focuses on emerging digital assets, public and private enterprise blockchain solutions, decentralized finance, autonomous organizations. Before joining Consensus, Lex was the global director of fintech strategy at Autonomous Research. That was later acquired by Alliance Bernstein. He covered there AI, neobanks, robo-advisors, mixed reality, you name it. He's also the former COO of Advisor Engine, CEO of Nest Egg Wealth, and he had prior stints at Barclays, Lehman Brothers, Deutsche Bank. Lex has a GD MBA from Columbia, BA in economics and law from Amherst, and you see his columns in the Wall Street Journal, The Economist, Bloomberg, FT, Reuters, American Banker, Think Advisor, Investment News, everywhere, and he's on the lecture circuit along with me at industry conferences all over the country. I think, Lex, the first time we spoke together was at Schwab, I don't know, was that a, 10 years ago? More than that, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, I need to to trim that bio. Uh, is uh, is my takeaway? Uh, but yeah, it was. Uh, I think from the robo advisor world, um, I had gotten bit by the entrepreneurship bug uh, around 2010, and um, was focused on digital wealth and trying to figure out kind of the consumer experience. And I think that's probably uh, where we started to intersect. When you were getting your law degree and your your joint uh, law degree and MBA, were you expecting to enter the crypto field? How did you go from there to here? Uh, that's that's very very kind of you to to bring up that degree as being useful. Um, <laughs> In other words, it's not. <laughs> I'll give you the honest answer, and it's a, it's a three part answer. Um, so the reason I went after the JD MBA, which is a law and and a business. Um, degree was I was telling myself a story that senior people in finance seem to have some combination of legal and uh, business experience. And if you looked around Wall Street at the time, I was at Lehman Brothers, um, uh, which, you know, God bless. Look what good it did them. Um, well, Dick Fold did not have a law degree, but the CEO of Goldman was a lawyer, blank, uh, uh, blank sign. And then the, the CEO of, um, I think Morgan Stanley was also a JD MBA. And then one of my direct managers um, who used to be Lehman CFO was a JD MBA. And I thought, okay, well, high finance is so complicated. You need the numbers, but you also need the systems. You need to understand regulation and the law and so on. And that was the story that I applied to Columbia with. Later on, what I figured out is that it's total correlation causation was totally mixed up in in my (laughs) sample set, right? So it's not that... Uh, the, these people were so good at their job because they went to these schools and, and got this background. It's it's the opposite, right? So if you've got the capacity to get these degrees, then you've got the capacity to um, to run these firms. But I don't regret it because I got four years of freedom and um, federally subsidized, you could say federally subsidized venture funding, right? 400 grand of uh, of loans to try and start a business and to have the freedom and kind of remove the pressure of very day-to-day life. And so I felt like I had a community and I had the freedom to try out something that otherwise I'd probably be too risk averse to do. And, you know, starting a company as an entrepreneur, the legal skill set is really important because you're doing all the corporate law stuff by yourself, even though it's not very large or impactful, but you might be drafting contracts, you might be drafting um, you know, you're dealing with a board, you might have some small transactions. Um, and certainly in the RAA space, you know, having a sense for regulation, figuring out the what's a broker dealer, what's what's a, an advisor, what are the um, legal limitations is interesting. 
But then once kind of crypto opened up, and for me, that was closer to 2017, once crypto opened up, it was it was kind of a dream, actually. And that legal background does translate quite well to crypto because all of a sudden you're thinking about economics, but you're also thinking about economics in the context of a very different legal system and a very different property rights enforcement mechanism. And you almost have the opportunity to, instead of building companies, building you know, constitutions and little little economies um, and tribes that have their own legal rules. And so I think there's some usefulness that's come out of that federal investment in my education. College is a whole nother conversation that I talk often on this program, as everybody knows, because I'm so critical of America's higher education system. $400,000 to get a law degree and an MBA, neither of which you particularly use. Uh, and the years that it took you to get those degrees, uh, that's a whole nother conversation. Uh, fortunately, some who obtain them are able to turn that into economic ROI to justify the time and money spent to obtain them. But we, as we all know, tens of millions of Americans are in student loan debt without having a degree. 39 million Americans have student loan debt but don't have a college degree. And they're in occupations that they're never going to bail themselves out of this. And we know the mess that we have with $1.8 trillion in student loan debt and blah, blah, blah. I'm not going to go there. I'm glad that your experience proved to have been worthwhile. But I want to see the connection now, Lex, of the rabbit hole. You know, everybody always asks, you know, you entered crypto in 2017. What was your introduction to it? What was your reaction when you first introduced? My first interaction with uh, crypto was with Bitcoin and with crypto assets and that first kind of macroeconomic story. Uh, and I think that it goes, you know, I had my robo advisor. And so that meant I went to every conference and try to sell things I didn't understand to, to other people that didn't understand them, but would pay for them, um, which always turns out fantastic. And I ended up in this uh, San Francisco fintech conference, you know, as a founder feeling like I'm on the edge and I should know what's going on. And it, it was 2012. And the the host said, raise your hand if you own Bitcoin. And something like a third of the people in the audience raised their hand. Wow. You know, 2012, early on. And it was a fintech conference. It was San Francisco. What, what are you going to do? You know, this is, I've stolen this technique now, right? If like I'm ever giving a speech, I immediately start with a quiz of who owns what and so on. Anyway, I didn't raise my hand because at the time I didn't own anything. And um, it was a little bit of like an identity crisis. Like there's a little bit of FOMO. Like how am I not getting this right? Um, and so I came back and Bitcoin was at $250 at the time. I opened up a Coinbase account. Uh, it was my birthday. And my wife was like, I'm going to, I'm going to get this for you, but I'm only going to spend $125 because obviously this is ridiculous. At 125 bucks in 2012, you got half a Bitcoin. It's, it's fuzzy in the past, but it was, it was half a Bitcoin for 125 and she wouldn't buy me more. So I spent 125 more of my own hard earned money while being in my uh, Columbia grad school hole. That math sounds about right. When I first started in 2012 as well, um, my first Bitcoin, I think, was either 400 or $700 in that, in that range. And, and my wife had the same reaction of, uh, you're, we're going to put a severe limit on the amount of this uh, nonsense you're buying, which I continue to tease her to this day about. Yeah. I mean, I got a lot of pushback from her and then lots of other people as well. But, you know, I... I didn't fall in love with the the macro narrative. I think there's a subset of people who gold bugs and anarchists and kind of countercultural people who 
who were very enamored with the commodity nature of Bitcoin and with the idea that it's decentralized and, you know, finally as the apocalypse hedge story. Um, and that's an asset class story. And I was really busy building like a software product for people. And so my lens at the time was like, all right, well, maybe this is something people hold a little bit, but it's not Google, right? It's not going to be the delivery mechanism of financial products to everybody. So I forgot about the crypto space until 2017. And what happened in 2017 was um, I was at Autonomous and I was looking into platform shifts, technology platform shifts, um, and I saw Ethereum launch and the idea that you could put a computer into a ecosystem that has a digital asset was very alien, you know, and for me, like bells ring when something is super weird. Uh, when something is very strange, it tells me to pay attention. So, um, you know, last year, an example of this would be uh, fashion companies designing 3D objects uh, into NFTs that like people on Instagram would wear, and then they would be rendered and sold on NFT marketplaces. Yeah, you're talking Dolce & Gabbana and Gucci and Burberry and Tiffany. Yeah. And most people will say that's, that's weird nonsense. It's just toys. Right. Um, and I had that, I had that sense about Ethereum um, and the offering, the coin, coin offerings that were starting to pop up. And by that time I had also been watching the equity crowdfunding field, you know, and my thesis having done robo advice was people hate finance. It makes them feel bad. And most people will not choose to interact with financial products. There are some people for whom it's an addictive drug and they like it and their personality is wired in a dopamine way. But for most people, they'd like to delegate and they, they, it makes them feel bad. And so that was consistent with equity crowdfunding. Equity crowdfunding largely is a failure. You know, there, there's, there's not a giant wave of retail interest to pick horrible private companies that then, you know, lose all their money and replace venture capitalists. It's, it didn't happen like that. But there was something different about Ethereum and the token offerings there, where actually people loved being part of it, and they started crowdfunding actually started to work, and it was very counter to my intuition. Um, and then, as I tracked the space, you know, and I had clients that were interested in it, um, I started to see dozens, hundreds, and then thousands of startups all trying to build companies and various protocols of very different types. So financial ones, data ones, uh, you know, pure technology uh, protocols, health protocols. And in 2018, you know, all these projects ended up, most of them ended up failing and, and being a bad deal, but it was profoundly interesting because it was an operating system for decentralized applications that could do, you know, financial functions in the same language as legal functions in the same language as privacy and data and all of it, you know, and having grown up in finance, um, the idea that your venture capital and private equity and fixed income and equities are all in the same place is also like profoundly liberating. And so I was just very compelled by this idea of a computational blockchain. Um, and so I ended up joining Consensus, which is the essentially the labs company for Ethereum, runs the wallet, the developer infrastructure, launches protocols, works on the main Ethereum protocol, um, and have you know done a bunch of things there. And what I find really interesting is that what fascinated you about Ethereum when it 
came about, and I remember that really clearly, my excitement about Ethereum was who was behind it. The Ethereum uh, consortium filled with Fortune 500 companies, companies that were paying no engagement at all to Bitcoin, but along comes Ethereum and the notion of programmable money, smart contracts, the ability to, as you said, put a computer into a digital asset, a coin or token. We had such huge companies engaged in this that my attitude was, I don't know if Bitcoin is going to survive, but Ethereum is real because these companies are not going to waste their time and energy or their reputations in something that isn't going to prove to be successful. And so like you, I got very excited about Ethereum extremely early, bought Ethereum as soon as it became available and have continued to own it since. At this point, I own more Ethereum than I do Bitcoin. What's your view today about Bitcoin versus Ethereum? Where is your excitement lying more? I I would be, it would be too much to call myself a technologist. Uh, you know, I, I can do some things with code, um, but I wouldn't call myself a technologist. But maybe as somebody who's predisposed to entrepreneurship and building and somebody who understands like software um, businesses and their ecosystems, the idea of an orthogonal internet, like a, a Web3 relative to a Web2, uh, a, an internet that has different starting principles where the economy of it has digital scarcity rather than infinite supply, where there is tokenized money and ownership rather than uh, you know endless attention and advertising. It's a dialectic to the internet. It's a diff- you know different version of it and a stretching of it. And I think the scale of that is far beyond finance or NASA class. I think the scale of it has impact on the fabric of our society of like what businesses are, what corporate structure is, what money is, um, how software works, you know, and like it's the cloud and a money reinvention all at once. It's janky. It doesn't process a lot. It's very pixelated and, and it lags. But um, I think the the core idea in it is quite, quite magical. Um, and so for me, the Web3 themes are just a lot much more aligned with what I find compelling, which is entrepreneurship, building stuff, like making things for, for clients, creating value in that way. I think the Bitcoin thesis is in many ways because it's simpler, it's more powerful, you know, and it, I find that people who are very loud about Bitcoin they can get really loud because they have like the one message um, and it's a sharp message, you know, and because it's very divisive, it's even more effective. So the people who you exclude will be excluded, but the people who you attract will be attracted to you a lot more um, than sort of somebody you persuade halfway. And so I think it's great to have um, a, a decentralized store of value that's independent of central bank supply and demand control. I think it's a it's a really useful thing to have meaning bitcoin meaning bitcoin but in terms of intellectual curiosity i mean i haven't thought about bitcoin for years to be honest with you does that mean you don't own any bitcoin at this point i i own some bitcoin um my ethereum position is certainly quite a bit bigger so we both are friendly with michael saylor who is one of the most vocal Bitcoin advocates, uh, as we know. And and we both know what Michael has to say about the reasons why um, he is so uh, much in favor and supportive of Bitcoin. And as you noted, his arguments are pretty good to the extent that they go. That's the thing. It's like really exciting. But 
sorry, interrupted you. You're absolutely right. It is it is exciting. It is persuasive. Uh, it is uh, a powerful intellectual debate. Um, but your attitude, and I think mine as well, is that only goes so far. Um, that really doesn't spill over into the world of commerce, the practical application of the technology into helping businesses operate faster, safer, cheaper than they can with existing technologies. And that's, I think, why I'm excited about Ethereum uh, as a tool for commerce. And, and am I putting words in your mouth to say that? Yeah, I mean, I think, look, um, there's things to say about payment rails and kind of Bitcoin as a currency that subsumes payment rails in potentially at some point um, if the tech were to be um, more performant. But it's like, you know, let's say... Uh, the European Union uh, digitized to such an extent that the, the entire currency of the European Union is now Bitcoin. Okay, okay, fine. I can I can buy my sandwich in Bitcoin instead of buying my sandwich in USD, or like, I just don't care. Like it, the that's the difference I think between wearing the maybe the chief investment officer hat and the like chief product officer hat. You know, whereas like sure. Um, it's a better money and it might have a great investment return. If the thing you primarily care about is investment return versus like the world burning and that's exciting to you and you want to track that, I think the Bitcoin macro narrative is where you want to live. Um, but I'm much more interested in the types of things that can be built in and around blockchain networks. Like what kinds of software companies, protocols and projects that are different and distinct from the businesses that, that have been built over the last decade and a half. Like what are those thousands of applications? What can they do being programmable, incorporating digital assets and so on? Like I want lots of, I wish much more Ethereum was actually denominated in Bitcoin. Like I wish many more NFTs were bought and sold using Bitcoin. And the thing about Ethereum that happened is that Ethereum actually became useful. And the reason Ethereum became useful is because you could use it to buy experiences and stuff that you like. So you can actually live in a Web3 environment. Like there are things you can do with your capital gains. And that's in part why there's this constant innovation because people generate capital gains holding Ethereum or then they go and they create a protocol. They create Compound or Aave or they create some DeFi protocol. And then people use ETH inside of that protocol to achieve some goal. And then that creates value in the token of the protocol. So there's capital gains and then people go and invest that. And then all of a sudden you have, you know, the arts, you have digital artists coming to the space and building tokens that again, other people can appreciate and buy. And so there's a creative loop and there's a, there's like an economic differentiation that happens because it's composable. There are different kinds of things you can do. And I think that's really interesting. So is there any reason then to buy Aave or Algorand or Polygon or, you know, you name it, uh, as opposed to just simply owning Ethereum? Or do you need to go to those other coins in order to gain the economic potential that Ethereum initiated but won't in, this, in and of itself fulfill? Yeah, I think the analogy I would go to, because evaluating tokens is very difficult um, including talking about fundamentals, much of the value of tokens is caught up in the macro cycle. And 
how much the value of tokens is caught up in the macro cycle is determined by how much integration of the crypto economy we have into the traditional economy. So the more institutional investors, i.e. hedge funds, the more Apollo and Tiger, you know, hold crypto, the more crypto is going to behave the same way as Google stock because the entity holding them will trade them in the same way, therefore creating correlation. As we have discovered in 2022. Exactly. So what you thought you had an early stage venture class that was uncorrelated and instead what you're holding is uh, a hedge fund shorting tech and, you know, uh, high beta stocks into, into zero. Anyway, putting all of that aside, somebody might want to buy Apple stock because they think the iPhone is a great platform for mobile applications. Right. So the iPhone is infrastructure for iOS. Within iOS, you have lots and lots of mobile applications, you have millions. Um, and so you might say people are going to use this thing as the remote control to their to their life. And it's such a great device. And Apple's going to do great because it'll be adopted and there's an adoption curve according to which this is going going on. Just because you buy Apple stock doesn't mean you should ignore every single application that runs on, on the phone, right? So what runs on the phone? Well, Facebook, also JP Morgan, right? Um, so every single company that has a substantive business is gonna use the operating system to deliver its services as a, as a distribution channel. And so, you know, they're, they're, they're very different bets. So you might be in a place where all you wanna do is hold Apple stock, but you might also be in a place where you want to have exposure to the substantive businesses that people are trying to build, but obviously it's a very high-risk endeavor. Now, we've been talking in a pretty deep conversation among uh, cryptologists, I'll call ourselves, people who are at least familiar uh, and if not fully immersed in the crypto space. But let's admit it, Lex, the vast majority of Americans still don't know much at all about any of this. And that includes, unfortunately, financial advisors themselves who have very little training and experience in this field as well. And that's, I've just described, pretty much everybody listening to the show. This is not a crypto show. I'm not Pomp. And my audience is not as sophisticated and knowledgeable as his in the crypto space. You tend to spend a lot of your time talking to people in the crypto world. Uh, I do a, a bit of that myself as well. But this show is being listened and watched by people who may be crypto curious, or maybe they're kicking and screaming highly annoyed that you and I are talking about this subject for as long as we're talking about it. So let, let's go backwards. I, I want to go backwards before I go forwards. And in the world of backwards, the one thing that everybody, everybody is familiar with is FTX. So we have to talk about the elephant in the room. What has the saga of FTX meant for crypto? What is the takeaway if there is one? What is the message we should be conveying to those who are listening and watching as they combine the crypto conversation with the FTX conversation? It's a really um, difficult question because there's so many layers of the onion here to peel off. And the first layer is the obvious skepticism and the righteous indignation that um, many people enjoy in the FTX moment. So my, my counter to that is you have a choice as a human being when uh, encountering this information. You can use a broad brush to paint different things in the same way, 
or you can spend the calories to try to understand the granular differences. And it's easier to paint with a broad brush and it feels good. And it feels good because likely people are coming from a place of like, oh, this thing's hard to understand. It seems kind of grifty, serves them right. You know, my perspective is again, that there's actual underlying information. And if you want to be intellectually honest, you've got to engage in that instead of doing the easy, but the wrong thing. Okay. So if I'm making the claim of like, there's, there's, there's something here to understand, what is that? So in any economy, there's a separation between the economic activity of the operating businesses. So the goods and services that, that businesses provide, I make sandwiches, you buy them, you know, we, we, uh, farm, we produce goods like we shoes and, and clothing and so on. And, and then we have commerce and exchange around that. Um, and then separate and apart from that economic activity, there's financial activity and finance is about 20% of GDP, give or take. When you have too little finance, you say, we don't have financial inclusion. All these emerging economies are underbanked. People don't have access to credit. If only they had access to credit, they could build businesses and thrive and it would be a better economy. Um, when you've got over-financialization, i.e. 2008, and you say things like, oh, all these derivatives are weapons of, of uh, math destruction. You know, uh, there's, there's too much finance. All the banks are stealing the money. They're paid too much. Conflicts of interest, blah, 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 right? Regulate the banks. So we know that there is some Goldilocks sweet spot. You need finance, there, but there's a Goldilocks amount of it relative to economic activity that you want. And finance has a role, which is to intermediate kind of people's financial health or to save for the future, to borrow, to invest, you know, to, to pay for things that are, that are going to grow uh, everyone's pie in the future. But that involves risk. And sometimes you can get caught in that loop. So for crypto, what I believe in is that I believe the architecture crypto provides as a technology is an economic architecture to create an operating economic environment for uh, digital exchange, digital assets, and digital objects. Like I think our internet of attention and advertising and all that stuff is over time going to be in part replaced by commerce and labor and production around digital objects, digital goods, and all of that's going to sit on the economic architecture of Web3. However, we're in this bootstrapping phase where the financial services aspect of it is very asymmetrically large relative to the GDP of Web3. And so there's a lot of over-financialization against a fairly small economy. You know, so people get excited about trading tokens or holding them in their portfolio. People get excited about using leverage protocols to lever up their tokens, to buy more tokens and so on and so forth. And so there is a, a lot of financial engineering that has gone on over the last five years because that's something this economic architecture is very good for. And so the balance between having a productive economy and then having lots of financial players uh, is, is out of whack and that has to be changed. On top of that, kind of getting to the specifics of, of FTX, when you look at finance in the crypto world, it's no different than finance in 2006 in the traditional world and no different than the finance in 1929 and no difference than a millennia ago. 
So the patterns, the behavioral patterns that people have around savings and paying and banking and investing and borrowing, they're all the same patterns. And so the mistakes that people make are also of the same type. And so what we've seen, you know, where FTX is the final kind of symbol of it, but what we've seen in the financial liquidation in the crypto market since the beginning of um, 2022 is a very traditional financial crisis. There was an asset that blew up, and that was Terra Luna, and that was a pretty large asset. So it was a $40 billion market cap protocol with a stable coin um, that was financially engineered in a way. You can think of it as a risk gone wrong. You know, So that was an investment that legitimately was part of the crypto ecosystem, was poorly designed, ended up blowing up. And so that created a loss. You can compare that to the loss that um, the underwriting mistakes during uh, 2006 to 2008 led to, right? So the the issues in the in the in the in the mortgage MBS crisis wasn't that people don't need homes; it's that the underwriting was incorrect and the defaults were much higher, and therefore the whole all of the financial instruments and the derivatives that sat on top of the exposure blew up. People still need homes. Similarly, on the, in the crypto world, we still need the architecture, but the financial engineering was, was such that it, it, it created a blow up and a, and a bad exposure. And then there was a series of uh, companies that had exposure to Terra and Luna. And these companies were not like crypto native protocols. They weren't digital asset companies. They were companies that were centralized exchanges which you know in the traditional world is a combination of a custodian exchange broker dealer and advisor packed into one with very little controls and regulation and um, disclosure and so companies that were in the business of selling and holding and tokens as investments ended up absorbing that giant 40 billion dollar hole and so you saw things like voyager and three arrows capital and Celsius start to blow up. You know, so Three Arrows Capital was an asset manager. It lost a lot of money through Terra. It had borrowed from other companies from their lending desks, which blew up the lending desks of those companies, which created a um, run on the bank cycle where people sold the assets, which then led to you know larger players like FTX starting to sell off their good collateral, i.e., Bitcoin and ETH, and then ending up sitting on their bad collateral, which was the FTT token. Um, and then retail runs on the bank to put money out and all sorts of other shenanigans. And in the case of FTX, very likely pretty straightforward fraud, you know, uh, which again has very little to do with software architecture or crypto assets. And so you have this financial liquidation cascade that has blown up um, the economics of the industry and has created a lot of fear you know and in my mind it's it's very regrettable that people don't separate out the financial crisis of pretty traditionally structured broker dealer type firms from the people building blockchain technology and building this new operating system with you know novel businesses and protocols and kind of conflating the two things so you've taken us from the past and you're walking a little bit toward the future which is where i wanted to go next you know if if FTX was, in the end, as you've noted, nothing but a fraud, just as Bernie Madoff was a fraud, he wasn't representative of the stock market, and Charles Ponzi was a fraud, not representative of banks and businesses in the 20s. What does that mean for crypto going forward in terms of what people think and feel about it? Do we 
shrug our shoulders and be dismissive of FTX? Or is crypto filled with nothing but Sam Bankman Freeds? Is the, is the whole thing nothing but filled with con artists and crooks and fraudsters? Or is that, as you noted, just the sideshow that is inherent with any investment category? And we need to invest in spite of or despite the existence of those folks. Um, can crypto survive this? And if so, how long will it take for people to put this into their rearview mirrors? Yeah, so I think what we're talking about is the financial sector trying to sell crypto assets to retail, right? Like that's what FTX is. And I'm, I'm going to keep trying to draw this line because it, it is fundamentally different from you know, the technologists that are building applications on Ethereum. Trying to build a company versus trying to be an investment banker for companies, different things. It's not obvious to me yet because I don't have the information or is, you know, it's going to take a while. Whether SBF was like Bernie in that like the whole thing is a Ponzi versus there was productive stuff that FTX was doing, but there were decisions that were clearly wrong, such as using customer funds, you know, taking customer funds to pay down debts, even, even if it's done through mechanisms like, oh, we're just borrowing against them or whatever it is. We're collateralizing our taking of customer funds with a token that we minted. So like, I, I think it's more complex than, oh, it's just literally a scheme. I do think the takeaway for the financial industry around crypto assets is that there's not a great reason for custodial businesses, businesses that want to take client money to be treated any different than any other financial services business that takes custody of people's money. You know, so when banks take your uh, money and put them into their depository institutions, there's FDIC insurance on top of it. And that's the answer to bank runs. When investment companies take your money and put them into a brokerage account that goes to some underlying, like the industry structure of having very large custodians that don't fail because of their enormous trillion dollar scale is the answer to making sure that somebody doesn't run away with your money through sort of like these conflicts of interest. Um, crypto has to do the same. You, you need to be able to trust these custodial institutions. And right now, you know, no custodial exchange feels safe other than maybe Coinbase. And that's because Coinbase is very well regulated. I mean, it's in the crosshairs of every American regulator. And I think that, you know, that applies across the, the crypto brokers. That's very different and distinct from, you know, I'm writing an app uh, to create digital identity, or I'm building a community using um, digital art and, you know, we create social events uh, or, you know, any, any other application that people are building on Ethereum, uh, which has something like 300 million registered users and so on. So I think the reputational issues of the brokers are definitely destroying um, destroying value. They're, they're hurting the venture market, the fundraising market. They are hurting perception. You know, token raises, it's much more difficult to issue tokens and have people believe that they're worth uh, something, maybe for good reason. Um, so it's harder for builders to build because of the reputational effects of FTX. But the lessons that we learned from FTX are about how financial industry should be structured. They're not about how, you know, the internet or Web3 should be structured. The common criticism that I often hear from those who are skeptics 
is that crypto doesn't work, that it doesn't solve a problem, that it's you know the so-called solution in search of a problem. I remember when Microsoft launched the mouse back uh, in the 1990s, and the very first review I read of uh, the mouse was, it's really cool, but what is it useful for? And today, of course, we wouldn't be able to operate our computers, our laptops and desktops without a mouse uh, in so many computer applications. It's so ingrained in the functionality. I wonder to what degree are the skeptics simply not realizing that they're unrealistically impatient, that they are expecting too much too soon from crypto and the technological innovations that it's bringing us, and that we need to be a little more patient to see this technology develop a little more fully, be adopted a little more extensively, to be able to demonstrate the utility, the promise that it's offering. Do you, do you share that viewpoint? Yeah, I think um, you probably tend to be more kind to uh, skeptics than than I would be. I think, you know, from for, this is going to sound very pretentious, and I don't, I'm not trying to frame it in that way. From you, Lex, really? <laughs> like, take the perspective of an artist, right? That's the the pretentious bit, right? Like, per, take the perspective of of you being an artist. Things can bring you inspiration or they can bring you information about the public mood, right? Because you are you might try to hit something about the zeitgeist or whatever it is. And so you, you care about information, but you care about information that lets you create. Um, the pushback that you described, it has no information in it. There, there is no content in those statements f- f- with which anyone can do anything. The first thing is they're on their fa- like on their face they're they're wrong statements, um, and so when people use them today, if if people are still using these statements today, like oh there's no use case, um, uh, it's not a better payments mechanism, blah blah blah, it just shows that they haven't put in any engagement or work to understand what they're talking about, you know, and and that's okay. Not everybody has to care about all the things. Um, there's lots of things I don't understand or care about, but it's it's just very hard to respond or do anything with that criticism. I think the way to answer that criticism isn't with an argument about, look, it does X, Y, Z. The, the way to answer it is just to say, look at the usage stats. Like you think that it's useless and nobody does anything with it, but hundreds of millions of people use it and do something with it, right? So the evidence for that statement being true is just the the quantitative evidence of people adopting it and using it, you know? Um, And so consensus uh, works on MetaMask, which is a crypto wallet as an obvious thread between my interest in robo advice and crypto wallets, crypto wallets, hold your assets, you invest through them. They, in many ways, resemble neobanks and, and payment apps, but they do a lot more than that. They're like, if you were to take uh, um, a neobank, robo-advisor, payments app, and all of that, and then attach a browser to it and make that run sort of like an economic architecture uh, and have all your stuff in there, um, you would have a crypto wallet. You know, So in the middle of last year, MetaMask had um, 30 million users. You know, so 30 million, compare that to 
Betterment. Compare that to Stash, Chime, any of the, right? Robinhood, I think is 10 million, 10 million users. Um, there was such wild organic demand, not demand by buying AdWords, you know, in the same way that I said equity crowdfunding failed, but these token offerings, there was a cultural caring about participation. And that's what attracted me to the space, right? Like for just one wallet and not the Coinbase wallet, not the Binance Trust wallet, but just for MetaMask alone to have 30 million people per month use it tells me that there's something valuable that they're getting out of their interactions. Um, and I think that's the largest proof you're going to get. There, there's the, if you were to go down the argument route, the argument is the following. Do you remember Real Player from like 2002? Sure. How, how, on a scale of one to 10, how much did you love Real Player? Uh, not very. Yeah, like a, like a, like a zero, right? <laughs> yeah. So um, the videos wouldn't play. They would always buffer. Uh, it was full of ads. It would slow mm -hmm. down your computer. There yeah. was no content on it. It was horrible. Even though real player sucked, anyone who at the time said real player sucks because and streaming doesn't work and video isn't for the computer, anyone who would have said that in 2002, you know, is on it on their face completely and utterly wrong, right? And that comment at that time had no content in it. There's no information in somebody saying streaming doesn't work because real player is not loading. But that's kind of my point, Lex, is that. Yeah. Could not people say that today about blockchain? I mean, every business at one point had a fax machine. You couldn't do business if you didn't have a fax machine. Well, today faxes are obsolete, but everybody today has a, a website. Everybody has a URL in their business. You can't operate a business without a website. But I'm not sure that every business today is using blockchain technology. So at what point are we going to have it as ubiquitous? We're streaming video as ubiquitous. Everybody everywhere does it. Yep. At what point are we going to be able to say that about Bitcoin, Ethereum, MetaMask, Web3, blockchain, et cetera. We're not there yet. As you said, it's hundreds of millions out of 8 billion on the planet. Yeah. I mean, if you were to put my feet to the fire, I'd probably give you a 20-year target. Um, and the, there are two analogies. You know, the, the point about real player is that obviously we have YouTube and TikTok and everything's video and it's streaming. So the, the two analogies are um, video games. So imagine Pong or Super Mario Brothers and it's pixelated and it's got 16 bits, right? And it's got four colors or eight colors. And now fast forward from that, draw the line to the entire Mandalorian series. Everything you see on screen is people in front of a green screen and the background is the Unreal Engine, which is from Epic, which is used to render video games, right? So the entire Mandalorian is that fidelity of imagery, right? Draw the line from that to Pong. And then the person who's complaining about Pong not being engaging or beautiful, that's what you sound like about blockchain if you're a skeptic. Um, the, the, other, um, the other analogy is artificial intelligence. You know, and it's, it's been fascinating since 2012 to kind of pick up this argument because the AI we're enjoying today is actually 60-year-old math. And there were three different waves of venture investment in AI over the last 60 years. Um, and all those three waves died. They all failed because there wasn't enough compute power and there wasn't enough information. And, you know, what are you going to do in the 70s with, with your complicated neural network? Nothing. So, again, like it may be that um, the blockchain journey is 
a 60 year AI journey until one day, you know, it can GPT three and, and pass the Turing test. I hope it's not that long. Um, but, but again, like that skepticism doesn't mean you shouldn't try to make it real. This has been a very fascinating conversation. And, uh, I, I think you're demonstrating once again, to folks who may not be as familiar with you, Lex, as I am, and just how deep you are in this space and how knowledgeable and, and helpful you are for folks learning about this. By the way, Lex is on our faculty uh, and teaches uh, one of the modules in our course on uh, for advisors who are obtaining their certificate in blockchain and digital assets. Your, your module is one of the most popular of all the modules in our course, as you know, Lex. Um, tell us about Consensus. If people want to learn more about the work that you're doing and, and the work that Consensus does, how do people learn more about Consensus? Absolutely. So I would advise the one thing I would advise your listeners is just to have curiosity. That's the only thing you need to do is just to have a little bit of curiosity. Um, so check out MetaMask, um, MetaMask.io and play around with uh, your crypto wallet. And then if you're interested in some of the things that I, I cover, um, I also publish a newsletter at fintechblueprint.com, uh, which opens up all these themes. And uh, you can always find me on Twitter uh, at Lex Soklin. That's Les Soklin here on The Truth About Your Future. Lex, thanks for joining us on the show today. Always a pleasure. Don't go away. Coming up next on The Truth About Your Future, a visit by my wife, Jean Edelman, with her Word of the Week. And remember, if you miss any of our weekday podcasts, you can listen anytime you like at wherever you get your podcasts and at thetruthayf.com. Allow us to introduce you to Tom, an ordinary person who helped shape the future by putting his money behind the right ideas. Tom enjoys tending to his tomato garden and is currently developing the perfect blend for his homemade spaghetti sauce. Tom is also accessing companies that help change the course of the aerospace industry by investing in Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100, which goes to show you don't have to be a rocket scientist to help push progress forward. Become an agent of innovation. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs' risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus with this information. Read it carefully before investing. The Truth About Your Future is sponsored by Global X ETFs. With volatile fuel prices and growing concern about the environment, consumers are embracing alternatives. Should your portfolio do the same? At Global X ETFs, we specialize in investments that look beyond household names, providing access to companies in emerging areas like electric vehicles and lithium battery production. So whether you're interested in EVs, hydrogen fuel cells, or another green technology, there is a world of opportunity to explore. Visit GlobalXETFs.com to learn more. You know, for the past couple of years on my radio show and podcast, we've been presenting to you Gene's Word of the Week each week, and I'm going to play for you Gene's Word of the Week this week. However, I want you to know that Gene's segment, 
Self-Care with Jean Edelman is now her own independent podcast, and the new podcast premieres every Thursday. And so Jean's segment, which I'm presenting to you today, actually debuted yesterday on Jean's own podcast. So you can listen to her podcast, subscribe separately to Self-Care with Jean Edelman. It's available at thetruthayf.com and everywhere that you get your podcasts. Here's Jean. Each week, we'll explore a word that I hope gives us perspective and provides an opportunity to pause and check in with ourselves. For decades, I've been a student of the healing arts, Reiki, traditional Chinese medicine, homeopathy, acupuncture, plant-based, and macrobiotic cooking. Join me on this journey and hear my word of the week. Great to be with you this week. I have my buddy here, Hoshi. So she's going to be with us today. Today I want to talk about journaling. I've talked about it many times, but did you know, are you familiar with all the various types of journals? I thought that we could talk about it today and then it would be fun to see what resonates with us each day and then we could have some fun with it. So the first type of journal is what we call narrative. This is where we write about what's going on and how we feel about it. It's a wonderful opportunity to process our emotions as we write. The one thing I want us to remember about journaling is that these words are just for us. This is our opportunity to find some quiet and process our life, our emotions. And so you don't have to worry. There's no right, there's no wrong. Just have fun with it. The second type of journaling is intuitive. And this is where we're trying to seek clarity. We've got a problem that we really want an answer to. And this is where we could sit, we could write out our question, and then write down whatever comes after it. This is a really nice and fun type of journaling. The next is our gratitude journal. This is a wonderful journal to have. Make the list of things that we are grateful for each and every day. And each of us have so much to be grateful for. And so remembering that each day is very important. The visual, this is the fun journal. This is where we can get out our crayons and our colored pencils and have words come up or pictures come up. We can doodle, draw. It's just a wonderful, fun journaling exercise. The next one is extreme of consciousness. This is where we just sit and we write whatever is on our mind, words, whatever. Just just keep writing and writing and writing until there's no more words and no more emotions. Very, very healing. And then we write a journal of what's going well, ongoing positive elements of our life, ourselves and our family and friends. So these are just a few variety of different types of journals. And so our action item for the week is to see what resonates with you. Try something new. What feels good? And the beauty of it is that we could, we could go one from the other. There's no right or wrong, just whatever feels good that day. And so my word of the week is very simple. It's pen. The P is for peace because when we are sitting, just us, with a piece of paper and a pen, no one's judging us. No one's reading our words. It's only us and the paper. We can express our emotions, our desires, our dreams, and there can come inner peace and inner calm. We can move out our anger, frustration, sadness, confusion. We put it all on the paper and then we tear it up or we burn it. 
It's a wonderful, wonderful release. The E is for emotions. You know what? There's so much going on in the world. We need to process our emotions. We need an avenue to be able to let go. And so this is a beautiful exercise to just write down. Remember our movement, remember our breath. But the key is that writing and then burning it, tearing it up, letting it go, that helps heal and that helps us process. And then you know what? We get to write down a new chapter. How do we want our new ending? How do we want our new day? And then the N is for navigate. When we write something down, we're actually setting an intention. And then that intention can help us create a path that would lead to a more joyful and fulfilling life. I encourage you this week to really play and practice with the journaling and have fun with it. Have a great week, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the program today. I hope you have a healthy and safe Friday the 13th. And make sure that you check out our master classes, a variety of subjects on crypto, college, retirement, and more. All of these master classes available to you for free. Just visit thetruthayf.com. I won't be with you on Monday. We'll be celebrating, along with you, Martin Luther King Day. So our next show will be Tuesday, where I'm going to tell you whether you lost more money last year in bonds or in crypto. The answer is going to shock you. Stay with us for then. I'll see you on Tuesday. Have a great weekend. The Truth About Your Future with Rick Edelman has been brought to you by Global X ETFs, dedicated to providing investors with unexplored intelligent solutions, and by Invesco QQQ, a fund that allows you to access the innovators of the NASDAQ 100. Invesco.com slash QQQ. Get the truth about your future with Rick Edelman. It's the truth, AYF.com.